life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come to a very interesting, all of it is, but this one is too, very interesting encounter of a young man with Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now as he, that is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit everlasting life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And the young man answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. I think if he'd look at you and me, he'd say, Listen, we've got about 400 things. He looks at this guy, one thing you lack, it just takes one lack though, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, take up your cross and follow me. But the man was sad at his word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Phew! Let's pray together. Lord, we just submit to your word. And there's never a time that we turn to it, that we aren't in awe that you have introduced it into human history. We thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives on your truth and to build our eternities upon it. And we acknowledge, Lord, that there's life and death in the room this morning. Anywhere people are gathered all over this world, there's life and death in the room, and eternities are at stake based upon what we do, Lord, with your word. And so we pray that your spirit would be great upon your word today. Make it simple. Make it clear, Lord. We pray specifically for those men and women that you love so much, they stand before you right now, but they have never, ever submitted themselves to you and trusted in Jesus as their Savior. We pray that today your Spirit would work through your Word, make things clear to them, and that today would be the day that that would happen. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This event that occurred in the life and the ministry of Jesus occurred in the final weeks of his life immediately prior to his death upon the cross for our sins and his burial and his resurrection. This conversation that Jesus had with this man is 
uh, recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, recorded in Mark, as we've already read, also recorded in Luke. And as we take all three accounts and we kind of put them together, we get a pretty good composite of who and what this man was that came up to Jesus and posed this question to him. We're told in Matthew's Gospel that this man was rich. We're told also in Matthew's Gospel that this man was young. We're told in Luke's Gospel that he was a ruler, probably a ruler of a synagogue. And so, as a ruler, he was also uh, possessed power. So he is rich, he is uh, young, he is a ruler, and so he's been affectionately named the rich young ruler in the Bible on the basis of these things. Now you think about a young man who is already rich and he's already attained to uh, significant power in his life and you've got a person like that and you think, wow, this guy is the total package. If he put some kind of a bio on, what is it, eHarmony or one of these places where you, I don't know how many things he'd get sent to him. Rich young ruler. And the interesting thing about him being rich and being powerful and being young is that he is at a time in life, being young, also being healthy, in which you can fully... Uh, appreciate and uh, absorb the benefits of wealth and the benefits of power. Most people attain, if we do attain to wealth and power, we attain to it later in life. And so sometimes, now I'm rich, now I'm powerful, but, you know, I can't eat anything but cream of wheat anymore, you know. And, and so you, it, things kind of get... They get mixed a little bit, but this guy is, he's, all, he's young, he's healthy, he's got the power, he's got the wealth, he's got everything happening in, in, in his life. This um, young man possesses all of the things that our world tells us brings ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life. I mean, to believe our culture, our culture is a very materialistic culture, it is a very youth-oriented culture, and is unique in much of the world as a result of that. But this materialistic, youth-oriented culture would tell us that this person here has attained, he's got all of the answers to life. This isn't the kind of person that has any great questions in life. This is the kind of person that has all of the answers. In fact, he ought to be coming to Jesus to provide him some counsel or something. He shouldn't be approaching Jesus with any questions related to his life. We're told more about this, this young man. We're told that in the passage that he's a man filled with a great urgency. He doesn't walk up to Jesus. He doesn't stroll up to Jesus. We're told that he ran to Jesus. We don't know how far he ran. We don't know if he's huffing and puffing by the time he gets to Jesus. We don't know how much he's sweating when he gets to Jesus. We just know that there's an urgency, that there is something going on inside of him, that it is of the utmost importance to him that he gains an audience with Jesus. We also notice that for all of his wealth and all of his power, he's a humble man. He's a respectful man. Because when he arrives at, to speak to Jesus, he immediately knelt down before him and does so publicly. Remember, this is a time 
in which his fellow religious leaders are plotting the death of Jesus at this moment. It is not a, um, a thing if you're wanting to m- remain upwardly mobile in the religious establishment of the day to publicly identify with Jesus at this late date and then to uh, show this kind of respect and reverence for him by bowing down at his feet. And yet he does that. He is really a remarkable young man. There's much to admire in him. He is a man also who is using his mind for its highest use. He's a man who's burdened with a great question. In fact, his mind is burdened with the greatest question that any human being will resolve uh, itself to in terms of, of giving its attention, and that is having to do with everlasting life. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit everlasting life? That question from him is absolutely sincere. There are some among his colleagues in the religious establishment, they ask Jesus questions out of an attempt to, you know, entrap him, or they had no, they weren't going to listen to anything he said. This guy's sincere. He wanted to know on this great issue of everlasting life, what does Jesus say about it? What side does he come down on it? And, and he wants Jesus' instruction on, on this particular subject. The most important question in, in life. And you, you have to give him, I think, great credit because he's asking this question at a young age. He's asking it where he's got a lot of things kind of built up against him. Typically when you're powerful, typically when you're rich, typically when you're young, you don't stop and think about stuff like this. You wait till later in life. He's got a conscience. There's something that's inside of him. He's, he's a special young guy. And, and here he is. He's thinking about things that, that normal, a lot of people don't give any attention to, but so often young people put it off, rich people put it off, powerful people put it off, but he's giving it very serious, very urgent uh, thought. He's also wise. And we know he's wise because of who he brought his question to. The ultimate authority on any question in life, and certainly any question related to eternity, is Jesus. And so he brings his question to Jesus. Now notice that the question that he asks Jesus implies that he's convinced and he is numbered among the majority of the world even this morning. He is convinced that eternal life is obtained by doing. That a person ends up in heaven one day on the basis of some amount of human effort, some amount of religious works that we can do, some amount of doing more good in in the course of my life than bad things that I do in, in my life. And essentially what he wants Jesus to do is to give him a list. Okay, here are the five things, here are the 30 things that if you can, you know, knock out this kick-the-bucket list, you can do these things before you die, then when you die you can be assured that you're going to have everlasting life and that one day you'll be in, in heaven. And, and so he believes, that's what he's coming for, give me that list. He's a diligent young man, he's a conscientious young man, 
And I have no doubt that he, in his mind, he thought, give me that list. If it's doing you want, I'll do it. And I'll have this knocked out in short order for you because I want to have my eternity uh, secured. Now, this belief that a person can earn their way into heaven by good works or by human effort or by religious activity is a belief, uh, it is the belief of a person who the Bible says is dangerously ignorant on two fronts. Number one, anyone who believes that they can get into heaven through human effort or by being a good person has a very superficial knowledge and understanding of the seriousness of sin, their sin. The second thing that anyone who believes that they can get into heaven through human effort has is a very superficial understanding of the holiness of God. To think that I can undo the damage that my sin has done in God's world and in God's universe by some human effort or some human works that I might do now really is an affront to God. The Bible teaches that we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The Bible teaches of every single one of us, no matter how good we are, this is a good guy, he fails the test, we'll get there in a few minutes, but no matter who we are, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin I have committed, we have committed in God's living room. The sins that we have committed against other human beings are not just sins that were committed against other people. In committing them, we committed them against God. We committed them in the context of His creation, in the context of this world. We violated His laws. We violated His rules. And sin is so serious that it is only the death of God's Son on the cross that is able to provide us with the forgiveness of sin, to provide us with salvation, because God's wrath hangs over my sin and it hangs over me until I have made Him my Savior. It is only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that, the, that for our sins in that sacrifice, that the righteous wrath, the right on, the perfectly legitimate and holy wrath of God toward our sin can be removed. The Bible says He, speaking of Jesus, and the idea is, and He alone, He is the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation means the satisfying payment only He and His sacrifice is the satisfying payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is, and I say it lovingly, I figure you're a little bit like me. I'm not afraid of the truth. Just tell me what the truth is. The Bible says, I'll do with it what I want, but I've got a right to hear the truth, right? 
It is an insult to God's holiness to think that I can ever of my own human effort make myself acceptable for that heavenly scene and the holiness of heaven to stand there in the very presence of God. Virtually all people who think that they're going to get to heaven one day based upon their own good works, their own doing, their own goodness, have a low view of the seriousness of sin, and they have a very deficient view of the holiness of, of God. And thus there's no fear of God. The fear of God is important. Until I've made Jesus my Savior, I ought to fear God. I ought to fear His holiness. I ought to fear His righteousness. I ought to approach Him. I ought to be confident in His love for me. I ought to be confident to approach Him for salvation. But I ought to fear Him until my sin has been forgiven and I've been made right with Him. Now, Jesus' response to the man's question is an interesting one. And one of the things you've got to understand, and this guy's got to understand, he's going to kind of learn the hard way, but he learns, is if you're going to bring Jesus a question, you've got to be man enough, or you've got to be woman enough, or you've got to be child enough to take the answer. Because sometimes we think he's going to have a certain kind of an answer, and sometimes the answer that he comes back with is not what we were expecting, and sometimes his answers aren't that easy to accept. So you, you ask an honest question, you've got to expect an honest answer back from Jesus, which I don't have any problem with. I think one of the problems today is you got political correctness going on, and you got everybody's being careful about how they phrase this and they phrase that. It's very, very difficult to find someone in your life who'll be straight with you. You approach God, He's always going to be straight with you. He doesn't care where He stands in the polls. He doesn't care who likes Him that day or doesn't like Him. We approach Him with a question, He's always going to be just dead on, straight, and honest with us. And that's what, I, that's what I need from Him. It's hard to find people who will be straight with us about how your makeup looks, how the, your shirt looks or your haircut looks. We really need someone to be straight with us about eternity and about where we're going to spend eternity. And so you go to Jesus and... He's going to be straight with this guy, and we get to eavesdrop uh, on it. The first thing that Jesus does in verses 17 and 18 is he challenges the man's uh, addressing him as good teacher. This is an amazing thing for this young man to come up to Jesus and call him good teacher. No rabbi was ever called good rabbi. You never went up and said, uh, good rabbi Hillel, good rabbi Shimei. The term good was always reserved for God. The rabbis taught that you could say that a man was a good man when compared to other men. But in terms of using the word good, they taught only God can be described as good without qualification. And this young man, he knew the ground rules here. And so in challenging the man, Jesus isn't denying the fact that he's God. He didn't say, don't call me good. 
I'm not God, I'm just a man. But what he said is, why do you call me good? What he's doing is he's preparing the young man for the conversation that's going to follow. You, you come to me and you ascribe a title to me that indicates that you believe that the answer that I'm going to give you is divine. What I want to ask you is, uh, will you still believe that after I give you the answer that you aren't expecting? He's not denying that he isn't God. He's just challenging, you know, what kind of authority this young man's going to give to his answer when it doesn't turn out the way that he wants. Jesus then begins in verse 19 by telling the man how to get to heaven by doing. All right, you want to get into heaven by doing? All right. Here's what you do. And he lays out in verse 19, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And in all of these commands, he's quoting the second tablet of the two tablets that God inscribed the Ten Commandments on to, to Moses. And on those two tablets, there were two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. The first tablet had the commandments that had to do with man's relationship with God, his vertical relationship with God. The second tablet of the law of Moses contained the commandments that had to do with man's relationship with his fellow man, his horizontal relationships in life. So you put them together and you have a cross and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So he begins here with this young man by quoting the second tablet of the law. Let's test you and see how perfect you've been in your relationship with your fellow man. And so he lays all of these things out. And the young man's response, shockeroo, you know, Marty Feldman eyes, cartoon eyes coming out, you know. His response is, I've kept these commandments from my youth. From the time I was declared a, a, an adult in this Jewish culture, from the time of my bar mitzvah, from the time of the age 12, this has been, I have not violated one of those commands in any of those relationships in my life. All right. So we have a man who's not only rich, not only is he young, not only is, a, is he a ruler, but he is a very, very, very off-the-graph very moral person. He is the kind of person that almost everyone in the world, apart from the Bible, believes automatically goes to heaven the moment they die on the basis of these kind of qualifications. Then Jesus does something very, very fascinating in verse 21 uh, in, in dealing with this man. In the last part of the verse, he plainly tells the young man how it is that he might have everlasting life. He declares to him this, come, take up the cross, and follow me. Jesus informs this young man that salvation is found in becoming one of his disciples, one of Jesus' followers. So that raises the great question, how in the world do I become a disciple or a follower of Jesus? And the Bible teaches that we do so by faith, by trusting in Jesus as our personal Savior. Jesus declared, John 3.16, most famous verse in the whole Bible, For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus, that whosoever, that's you and me, 
believes in him or trusts in him for the forgiveness of sin shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so be, the salvation begins with putting my faith in Christ as my Savior and so begins a life of obeying and following Jesus. So here's how, it ha- here's how it works for you if you've never done that in your life. You come to God, room like this will work just fine. A living room, a bedroom, walking along the canal, anywhere will do fine. A movie theater, anywhere. Where a person just stops long enough in life and says to God, God, I believe your assessment of me in your word. You say I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all my life. Your Bible says that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you because you're that holy. I don't have a beef with that. I want you to be that holy. I don't want a God who's just a bigger version of me. I'm thrilled that you're different than me. So I believe that my sin has separated me from from you. But I also believe your Bible when it tells me that you loved me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and that following dying for me on the cross for my sins, he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that that is the Savior and the salvation that pleases you. So today, right here, I turn from my sin and my selfishness, that's called repentance, I turn from that, I turn to you, I put my faith in Jesus, make my life yours, and when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes into their life at that moment. They're born again by the Holy Spirit and we now become a disciple or a follower of Jesus. That's how that happens. And and all around the world that will happen as people will give their life to the Lord today. And salvation is a free gift from God that we receive by simply acknowledging Christ and putting our faith in Him for salvation. Now, one of the fascinating things about this exchange between Jesus and this rich young ruler, and I, most of us can track with what's happening, you know, this is a fairly straightforward kind of gospel presentation that Jesus is doing here with a young man. But one of the fascinating things about this exchange is that Jesus then recognized the one great thing in this young man's life that stood between him ever becoming a follower of Jesus. There's some great thing in his life. Jesus looked at him, loved him, we're told in the Scriptures, and recognized there is one great big issue in your life that is going to forever, if you don't address it, keep you from ever uh, putting your faith in me and following me. And Jesus recognized it, 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 and he told the young man, verse 21, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And Jesus recognized that this man's love for his riches was the master passion of his life. And he would need to overcome that master passion in his life to ever allow Jesus to become the master passion uh, in his life. And Jesus recognized that this love of riches, you don't have to be rich to have a love of riches. 
You can be dirt poor and money can be your God. But he recognized in this man, this love of riches had such a grip on him and was such a danger to him ever putting his faith in Christ and becoming a Christian and having everlasting life that Jesus called on him to deal with very, very decisively with his riches in this way, to sell it, take the proceeds, and give it to, to the poor. Now, I remember many years ago down on 10th and F, I got my head all goofed up when I was teaching this, and I taught that Jesus said, you know how things get backwards when you're talking sometimes? So I, I, I taught that Jesus told them that he was to sell everything to the poor and then take the money. So it's a little less than what Jesus was asking for. This is why I like, I like all of you to have your Bible open when you come here to this church. Now, it's very important to realize that Jesus doesn't demand that everyone sell everything that they have and give the proceeds to the poor in order to follow him. But he did with this man because of the danger that his love of riches represented to his eternity. And, and you, you notice this was very specific to him, verse 21. Jesus looking at him, loved him, said to him. And it's also important to notice that this young man was unwilling to do so, at least for the moment, revealing something very, very important, that he loved his money more than God, which was and is a violation of the number one commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Ah, so he wasn't perfect. And he wasn't as perfect as he thought. He was like every single one of us, a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, I think before anyone starts thinking that Jesus was tougher on this guy than he is on everyone else. You can read this and you can think, man, Jesus just, wow, just hammered this guy. He's harder on this guy than, he's, than he is on almost anybody else in the Bible. He's harder on this guy than he is with anybody trying to come to Christ today. That's not true. It's not true. Because what Jesus did to this rich young ruler, he does to everyone who expresses an interest in becoming one of his disciples. To everyone who comes to him and, and inquires about putting their faith in him for everlasting life. And it's called repentance. Jesus calls on every single person to repent in coming to him for salvation. To have a willingness to repent of our sin. Do you know what the very first word of Jesus' public ministry was? Love. No, it wasn't. Though he was love. The very first word of his public ministry was Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Elsewhere when Jesus was preaching, he declared to the multitude, Repent and believe in the gospel. And what repentance means, repentance means to have a change of mind about the directions that I'm going in life. 
A change in mind about the path I'm on in life. A change in mind about what is the master passion in my life. A change in mind about what I believe about eternity. And biblical repentance will never stay as just something that happens in our mind, a change in, in mind. But that change in mind will always then translate into a change of direction practically in our lives. Because before we are Christians, we're going in the direction of sin. We're going in the direction of selfishness. That's a road, that's a path that goes someplace, that has a destination at the end of it. The road that Jesus is on, the road that Jesus calls us to join Him on, is a completely different path. It goes to a completely different place. It has a completely different destination. There is a completely different kind of life and quality of life found on it. You cannot walk both paths at the same time. To believe that I can walk on both paths at the same time is to be self-deceived. Jesus says, I must, in order to get on His path, I must repent. I must have a change of mind about my sin and be willing to turn from that sin and obedience to it to now be willing to make Jesus the Master and Lord of my life in order to get on that path. That's what repentance is. And Jesus demands repentance of everyone. He, he demands the same level of repentance of every single person in this world that He demanded of this rich young ruler. The only difference being what particular master passion or sin you and I are going to have to give up to join Him on that path as opposed to to the master passion or sin this young man had to give up. It's just which sin. But everybody has to repent. Jesus said to everybody, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. The very same things that he said to this young man. And the reason that we don't recognize this as being the case, that Jesus is equally demanding of every one of us as sinners as he is of this rich young ruler is, is because the call to repent is largely ignored in most gospel presentations today. We're told that we need to trust in Christ and follow him, but we're not told that we must also repent of our sin in order to do so. And when the gospel is preached with a call to repent, then there is a call to turn away from any sin or anything that would keep us from putting our faith in Him as our Savior and then walking with Him after we've done so. So Jesus can come into a room like this, to people like us in a room like this, and just as He did with a rich young ruler, He'll say, you're going to have to flush those drugs down the toilet if you're going to follow me. Because where those take you? In this life and the life to come. And where I'll take you, those are two entirely different paths. You're going to have to stop cooking those books at the office to make them say what you want someone else to believe but isn't true. You're going to have to stop 
partying and stop the drunken lifestyle if you're going to come after me. You're going to have to get out of that gang. Because where gangs take people and where gangs lead people and where I take people and the kind of person I fashion people into, those are two entirely different things. You're going to have to stop having sex outside of marriage with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend in order to come and to follow after me. And he puts his finger on these master passions, these strongholds in our in our lives, these things that we love, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that have a, a greater place in our life, the sin, than, than we've given Christ yet in our lives. And so you can fill out the list on your own, whatever, however you might want to fill it out. The young man's response to Jesus' answer to his question in verse 22, Jesus' answer made him sad. And it made him sad because he had great possessions. And so what was the result? He went away. He just turned on his heel and he walked away. That's all we know about it. And in doing so, he proved Jesus' point that he loved his riches more than everlasting life. He loved his sin more than he loved God. He is not blowing Jesus off here at all. He is not mistaken one bit about what Jesus is demanding of him. He gets it completely. It's the fact that he does get it that saddens him so much. He understands what Jesus is demanding of him. And the interesting thing is, is that as he turns on his heel and he begins to walk away, Jesus does not run after him and say, well, you know, hold on a second. I try that on everybody. It hardly ever works, so we got a plan B. Jesus is absolutely unflinching and unapologetic in his call for this young man to repent. And he is unflinching and he is unapologetic about his call to you and I to repent in order to put our faith in Him because He knows what we lose sight of so often on planet earth, but they never lose sight of in heaven, and that is no sin is worth missing heaven over. Now, Jesus wants the disciples to learn from what they just witnessed with this rich young ruler, and what, they, and what He wants to teach them is really the perils of riches, the dangers of riches in verses 23 through 27. And so notice his observation to the disciples is that all of them are watching this young man walk away. And Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't know how you read it. I can almost hear a sigh. I can almost hear a sigh in what he says there. And riches really do seem to, to fix a person's heart on this world, in this life, in a way that those that don't have riches aren't, don't have to deal with. They take a person's attention off of, of eternity. Here's this young man. I mean, he's rich. When he walks away from Jesus, all he can see is what he's got to give up. And, and he can't in his mind, he doesn't have any sense of proportion. He, he's completely forgotten about what he's gaining. 
if he would just follow Christ in this way. What he would gain is everlasting life. How much value is riches one second after you're dead? I have known so many people who have refused to follow Christ over some issue of riches, some material thing they're not willing to give up. They will, they are, I'm not going to put all this stuff that I have under His Lordship. I'm not going to risk it. And you talk to them two years later, five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, and very often they've lost all of it. But then how tragic to even hold on to all of those riches until the very day that I die, the moment that I die, and then death separates me from all of it. I have not only lost all of my riches, but I have now gone into eternity facing a horrible eternity of judgment because I tried to hold on to something that you leave at death's door. Doesn't make any sense. And a person can really love their money more than their own soul. And when he spoke, this to the disciples, they were astonished at what he was saying because they had a prosperity doctrine in those days, just like today. And the prosperity doctrine was this. If you were rich, God liked you a lot and liked you a little more than everybody else. It was a sign of God's favor. That's what the rabbis taught. They were conveniently very rich. So how, of course, the, the idea was, of course rich people are going to heaven God, look at God's manifesting His favor on them. Look at how rich they are. So they're astonished. What do you mean? And then they go on and they talk about who, who can get into heaven if rich people can't get into heaven. That's how indoctrinated they were on, this, on, on all of this. And Jesus declares, verses 24 and 25, from, from heaven's perspective, how hard it is for rich people to be saved because of the tendency to trust in riches. Riches give a false sense of security that's almost impossible to break through. Jesus said it's harder to push a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person into heaven. I didn't say that. He said that. Now, thankfully, he gets there in verse 27, and he says, With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. He knows how many people, by His Spirit, rich people, He has pulled into heaven through the eye of a needle. You can't, you can't, you, you, you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. Gail Irwin said, you've got to grind it up really fine. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have ever tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle. I'm just doing good with thread. I got the, my needles are like this. They got the big, my eyes, they got the fine. They try to get the thing through there. And it's, the whole thing is a proverb on human impossibility. Jesus is saying it's humanly impossible for rich people to be saved. Now you may sit here as a rich person. Don't shout out. You won't. I know you won't. So I, you, nobody would, But the point of the passage it, related to this is as a wealthy person to really stop and think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying things about people in your positions that he didn't say about everybody. So it's important to listen to it. There are, you, you, you face unique challenges to one day being saved.
because of, of what riches do to you and, and the power of riches in a human life. But again in verse 27, nobody's beyond hope. I mean, so really sometimes we look and we say, wow, what a miracle that person got saved. You should say it about every rich person that walks with God. Don't look down on rich people. I know many people who are very well off and they, they are so kingdom-minded and they are kingdom-minded with their wealth. They make stuff happen all over the world. You can't believe. But thankfully, thankfully, no one is beyond the power of God to save, the reach of God to save. Everything's any person can, their priorities and their heart can be changed by God. So from the rich young ruler we learn that you can't get to heaven by doing. It's a gift from God. So you sit here, you know, man, I've been going to church for five years, been going to church for a hundred years and whatever, and I say, how, many, how, often these, how often are these preachers going to say that? It is the dominant view of the population who inhabits this city that we live in. And it's a wrong view. Where's the last funeral you attended? Everybody goes to heaven. I haven't heard anybody to a funeral when I'm there as a civilian. The guy could be an axe murderer and burn down half of his hometown. And he's in heaven, probably got a duplex right next to St. Peter. The, the view, the prevailing view is just be a little better than you are worse and everybody gets into heaven. And that's why you've got to pound the point and pound the point. I can't reach anybody out there. My responsibility is for who God brings into this room. And I don't need to name religious systems for you that are all built on the idea that you can make yourself good enough for heaven. And that's a sure way to miss heaven. You cannot get into heaven except by putting your faith in Christ. That's a life changer. That's an eternity changer. The second thing that we learn is that we must not let any sin or anything keep us from being born again and becoming a follower of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 3, and I'll paraphrase it, after he, after he did the John 3.16 and the way of salvation, he then was speaking and to Nicodemus, and in essence he said, you know, the reason that people don't come to me, they're not intellectual reasons. So let me tell you what we run into in heaven. Here's why they don't come. Because they love darkness and they don't want to bring that darkness into the light it's all about sin for every single one of us there has to come that point in our lives where we look and believe these important things about Jesus for our salvation but then have that willingness in a moment in time to say I will not let this sin send me into a Christless eternity, into judgment. 
today in this place, I want to make Christ the master passion of my life. And I am willing to turn from my sin and my selfishness to turn to God and then to trust Him to come into my heart and give me the ability to live a life that is entirely different from that life. And He will do it. And He will do it for the asking. He will do it at your invitation. Repentance, you you see those things where people got the sandwich board, repent, the end is near, and repentance is kind of like this bad word. Oh no, has it come to that? We've got to repent. Repentance is a privilege. Repentance is a joy. And it's a joy to repent of our sin and of our selfishness, not just because it affects our eternity, but the whole new life that opens up to us in this life before eternity in repenting of our sin and now walking with Christ. It's a privilege to live that kind of life. And all a person has to do is dabble in sin long enough to where now it's no longer fun. Now it's a bondage for a person then to look and say, all right, is there any way out And then when Christ comes along and says, yes, repent of your sin and believe the gospel, then you say, all right, where's the line form? And where it forms in this room is immediately after this service, there are going to be men and women up in front. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer, so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to begin a personal relationship with Christ today and and doing so, taking care of what this man was concerned about and everyone should be concerned about, and that is where we'll spend eternity. They'll give you a Bible and they'll give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. If you're already saved, or whatever your condition here today, and you want prayer from, for anything in your life, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together now and we'll pray.